Turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark uh, chapter 6. I want to begin there tonight, Mark chapter 6, familiar scripture. Uh, going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000. Um, I like this uh, passage of scripture. Um, in my entire life, to the best of my memory, I've, I've preached on this at least two or three different times. I've, I've preached on this passage of scripture, of course, something different you know, out of it each time. There's so many things that we can take from this. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is one of the few things, one of the very few miracles that we read about in all four gospel accounts. Now think about it. There's not very many things that appear in all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? Not even the birth of Christ is in all four gospel accounts. Only, it's only in two of the gospel accounts. So this is something that uh, uh, something that's very important, and, and I think there's uh, quite a bit the Lord wants us to learn from this. So we're going to begin in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. I, I'm just going to start out by reading the first couple verses, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer, and then, and then I'll just, we'll continue to kind of work our way through this passage of Scripture, and I'll try to share with you what God has burdened my heart with. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 30, says, And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, and told him all things, both that they had done and what they had taught. And he said, uh, and he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing. And many knew him and ran afoot thither out of all cities. And out went them and came together unto him. Let's stop there and go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you one more time tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and the many blessings. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here tonight, uh, to worship together, to fellowship together, uh, to share your word here tonight. God, we thank you for uh, all the blessings, but we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. Lord God, that you sit him and give him so that we might have life, have that life eternally and abundantly. God, we're not worthy. We don't deserve it. We can't do enough to thank you or repay you. And God, you knew that. You knew that beforehand, but you've done it anyways. You sent him anyways, knowing that we, weren't, we didn't deserve it, we weren't worthy, and we would never be able to make it right with you. God, you've done it anyways. And so, Lord, let us be a people that never forgets that, never takes out lightly, but let us be a people that always, always have praise and glory on our lips for you because you alone are worthy of it. Lord, I pray as we go forward in this service tonight, Lord, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know where we stand. God, you know where we fall short. Lord, there's nothing hidden from you. Not a single thing, right? You know what's in the deepest recesses of our hearts. So God, I just pray here tonight that you would move in a mighty way. God, that you would stir each one of us. God, that you'd lift us up. Lord, that you would encourage us. God, if there's one among us that doesn't know you, one that's lost and undone, Lord, let tonight be the night they would repent and get things right with you before it's everlasting too late. Lord, my prayer is that each one of us would leave here different than how they come in. Each one of us would leave here with a greater desire to serve you, a greater burden 
for a lost and dying world, greater hunger for you, for your righteousness, for your word. Lord, have your way and your will here in our midst. Let your presence be felt and known. And God, one more thing. I can't preach without you. I got nothing to say lest you give it to me. So Lord, I'm asking for your help tonight. Clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words. Place on my tongue the very things you'd have me to say here tonight. Lord, my, uh, Lord let each one know and recognize. Lord, as I preach from my spirit to theirs, that it comes from you through your Holy Spirit. And God, will all rejoice together. And every single one of us will give you every bit of the glory for it. Because you alone are worthy. You alone deserve it. We love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You can find uh, this account of the feeding of the 5,000 in all four of the Gospels. You will notice, you will find uh, this account immediately after the death of John the Baptist. Right, right after John the Baptist has been beheaded, uh, you, will, you will find that word gets to Jesus, right? That's part of what the disciples was talking to him about. They come back, they tell him what's happened, what's going on. This is the beginning of the third and final year of Christ's earthly ministry uh, here on earth. And what does he do, right? His reaction to that news is he gets the inner circle, right? The 12 of, of what we recognize and know as the 12 apostles. And he begins to withdraw with them right to prepare them right it's almost like this is something he knew was coming and he was watching and waiting for because this is the signal to him right and he begins to pull them apart and prepare them for what is about to come what is coming up right he is getting ready to make a trip to Calvary's cross in any ways and so uh, so so this is the setting that has happened here, right? And so we get the idea, we get the picture. At this point, he has become so popular. The crowds, uh, people are just, he's drawing people from all over. They're coming because of the miracles uh, and because of the preaching and the teaching as well, but really a lot because of the miracles. And so anyways, as a matter of fact, it always interested me here. They take a boat, kind of catty corner across the corner of the Sea of Galilee. And these people come around by foot, right? You can see them almost chasing them on the shore. This multitude of people by foot around the edge. And they catch them, right? They catch up with them by the time that they get to the other side. And so the feeding of this, we always call it the feeding of the 5,000. But really the scripture just counts the men there, 5,000 men. That's not counting the women and the children. If we were to count, when we count the women and the children, of course we can only guess at how many there were, but probably somewhere between 15 and 25,000 people in total. We look here at verse 34. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were a sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus, listen to me. Jesus came for one purpose and one purpose only. Full stop. End of sentence, period. That's one thing that makes the social gospel that is so popular today a false gospel. Right? Right? 
The good news is not that Jesus came so that all of the poor and the homeless and the sick can be fed and clothed. Jesus came for one purpose and one purpose only. And that, my friends, was to die on Calvary's cross for your sins and my sins, for the sins of the world. But we also see that many times, just like right here in verse 34, it says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion towards them. Many times he would look out upon the crowds and he would be moved with compassion. He would have compassion on them. You can look all through the gospel accounts and you can see this same pattern over and over and over again. And his reaction is the same over and over every time. That's when we see him. That's when we see him perform miracles. That's when we actually see most of his teaching and his preaching, right? As he looks out on the crowd, he sees them as sheep, right, that are lost, wandering around aimlessly. Sheep without a shepherd, right? Sheep that are defenseless, right? Sheep that don't have a clue what they're facing and what's going on. And, he, and he's moved with compassion. And that's when he begins to teach. That's when he begins to preach. That's when he performs his miracles. That's when the healings take place. See, that's something that we miss so often. All these things that, now let's be honest here, all these things that are popular that we like to talk about, right, the miracles and the healings and the things like that, and praise God that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he doesn't change. Hallelujah that he's still in the healing business. Glory to God. Hey, hey, praise God for all of these things. Praise God that, that, you know, we don't have a God that's so distant that he doesn't care. We don't have one that's so weak that he still cannot touch his people. Right? He's still the great physician. He's still working miracles today. But understand, oh, that's secondary. Oh, that's a byproduct. Right? Jesus come for one purpose. One purpose only. Right? That's to die for our sins. Right? It's the it's reconciling of us to God. Right? That is the purpose. That's what it is. That's what everything points towards. The healings and the things like this, is, he's moved with compassion upon the people, and that is a byproduct to it. That is not a primary purpose. I would say, um, and I didn't plan this this way, but I would say this to, not just to you, but to any potential missionary. Be careful that you don't... All the good works that we do is fantastic and it's great. And because we possess the same compassion that Christ uh, uh, possessed, we too are moved with compassion and want to do these things to help people. And we should with every bit of means that we have. But never forget the main purpose. We have the same one that he does. That's to see souls added to the kingdom of God. Right? That's to see those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Names written in the Lamb's book of life. So, I wonder as Christ looked down here, 
And sometimes I think that, you know, they talked a lot about what we ought to do. Sometimes I think maybe that sometimes we lack some of that compassion, though, don't we? Sometimes we look out on the masses and the multitudes, and instead of having instead of our hearts being moved and having compassion for them, we think things like they're getting what they deserve. They made bad choices, and that's why they got what they got. That's not the example Christ set for us, is it? I'm not going to get anywhere if I don't keep going. Verse 35. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. People came because of the miracles. They came to hear our Lord Jesus preach and teach. So much so that they didn't care. This is a desert place. That means that it's out in the wilderness. There's nothing around there. The disciples come to him and they are saying, what we see here, they're the ones saying this is a desert place. Now the time is far spent. Can I just put it in my own words here, my own hillbilly terms? They're coming to him and this is the disciples talking to Jesus and they're saying, we've done enough. We've done enough. We come out here to get away, right? We come out here to get away from the crowds, right? We come out here to, 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 to deepen our relationship with the Lord, right? We come out here to commune and, and, and to pray, right? We've come out here to prepare for what is, what is ahead, right? And the disciple, and, but yet here's this crowd, and you've suffered them and dealt with them all day long, right? And taught them, and, and, and I mean, now come on, people are still people, right? You, do you realize all the silliness and nonsense that they probably had to deal with and put up with along the way? And the disciples had enough, they say, we're out here in the middle of nowhere, the day is far spent, it's evening time, we've done enough, Lord. Verse 36. So here's the rest of what they say. The disciples are talking, and they tell Jesus, Send them away, that they may go into the country round about, and into the villages, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Now, first of all, on the surface, we recognize the disciples are worried over how they're going to feed this crowd. So the disciples are telling Jesus to send them away. Right? Send them away. There's no McDonald's around here. There's no Burger King that's out here that's open, you know. There's nothing for these people to scrounge up and for them to eat. Dismiss them. Send them away so that they can go out and they can, you know, fend for themselves. I was thinking about this, this phrase, send them away. It actually hit a little too close to home for me. Sometimes, and I mean in even the best of our churches, we don't realize that a lot of the lost folks out there, they don't think that we want them here. You know that? A lot of the lost people, they don't think that we want them here. Right? I don't know if you realize that or not, but talk to some of them, you will see. Right, if you if they will just get right down, and some of them may be too nice to say to say it, but the ones that will get right down and get real honest with you, 
They don't realize that we truly want them here. Now, that's in the best of churches. Sometimes, in the not-so-good churches, what they think is actually true. Unfortunately, some of our churches, maybe some of us, right? Some of us sitting in, in all of these churches. Maybe some of us sitting here tonight. What I just said is true. We don't want them. We're just like the disciples, right? We, do, we have the send them away attitude. Deep down inside how we feel is send them away, Lord. We can't handle them. We can't deal with our problems right now. We've got enough of our own problems, right? We can't be burdened with their troubles, right? Uh, we think things like they won't ever change, right? We, we're, we're just wasting our time. We're wasting our efforts. We're wasting our money, whatever the case may be. They won't ever change. They'll never turn around. We'll say things like, they know the truth. I can't count how many times I've heard and maybe been guilty of myself a few times, but I've heard people say things like, they know where the church is. They know that they need to get saved. They know that this is where they ought to be. They know that they're invited. They know that they're welcome to come here. But can I ask you something? Do they? Do they actually know that? How do you, if you've ever thought that or said that, how do you know that they know that? Have you told them? Have you ever told them? Have you ever made sure that they knew that they were welcome? Verse 37. And he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred pennies worth of bread and give them to eat? Now listen to what Jesus' response to the disciples, right? The disciples come to Jesus and they tell him, Look, we've done enough. This has gone on long enough. We're in the middle of nowhere. It's getting late. There's, we, we don't have what it's going to take to accommodate them, to feed them, to take care of them. Just send them away, Lord. And Jesus' response to them is, you feed them. Jesus did not say, yeah, you're right. We probably better give them time where so they can get somewhere so they can, you know, make accommodations, right? So they can get something to eat. So maybe they can get back home or, or find them a good place to camp for the night or stay for the night. No, he didn't say any of those. He turns right to the disciples and he says, you feed them. You feed them. Here we're talking about somewhere between, man, I would say on the low end it's got to be ten or 15,000, maybe as many as twenty or 25,000 people that are there that day easy. 
do you realize that, you know, depend on exactly how many people is there, but it would take somewhere between 15 and 25,000 pounds of food. 15 and 25,000 pounds of food to feed that group just one meal. And he's telling them, quit worrying about how great the need is. And quit worrying about how much it's going to take to meet those needs and to just go take care of them. Just go do it. Quit questioning, you know, looking at how large the task is and how impossible you think it is in your mind and just go do it. Just go take care of it, right? And when I think about that, I start thinking we've got to quit worrying about how big and numerous the needs are, how ill-equipped we are, right? And we just need to go out and compel them to come in so that their needs can be met and the greatest of which is salvation. The spiritual needs always outweigh the physical needs. And I don't think that's what we're getting at, the heart of this. As a matter of fact, I believe the bottom line in the parable of the Great Supper in Luke chapter 14 is that we are, to, as the scripture says, to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in so that God's house may be filled. I absolutely think that's the bottom line. And this is the opposite of what the disciples wanted to do, right? They were ready for the people to go away. They had had enough. They had wore out. They felt like they had done enough already. They were ready for a break. They were ready for a rest. They were ready to get back to concentrating on themselves. Isn't that the problem in the church today? If you think I'm wrong, answer me this. How many times have you ever heard somebody leave a service or leave a church and say, I didn't get nothing out of that? How many times have you walked out and you thought that? When you say something like that or somebody says something like that, where is their mindset? What are they focused on? Same thing, disciples were focused on there. Feed me. Take care of me. Right? It's about me. Listen to me. It's not about you. Right? If you're saved, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's not about you and me. That's what our culture today says. Our culture says today that we need to do everything to build our self-esteem, that we need to talk about how great we are. Right? I, I mean, that's one of the things that, look, I'm not condemning Facebook. I've Finally, after all these years, even got my own Facebook account. But I'm saying that's one of the big problems with social media and all that is it's self-promotion, right? That's what we're taught. It's self-promotion. It's all about me. That culture seeps into the church, right, where we focus. It's all about me. It's all, it's all about what I can get out of it. That's why we have things like the, prosper, the, the prosperity gospel and the social gospel and all of these things are so popular and so prominent because it focuses on me. That's why our church has become, instead of everybody getting in and putting in what they've got and worshiping together in spirit and truth, instead it's become a spectator sport. And we come and we sat to see what we can get out of it. That's what's going on with the disciples. 
That's what's happening there. That's their issue. That's their problem. That's what's wrong with their thinking. That's why Jesus said, no. You feed them. Can you imagine that? Now think about it. You just told, you just told Jesus you like him. If we spent every dime that we had, it wouldn't even be close to enough. That's saying there was somewhere to go get food for them. Jesus says, you feed them, Scott. You feed them. That's what he said. That's what happened. So let's look a little further here. Let's think about this for a minute. Verse 38. Let's just look at the rest of what happens here. He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. Hang on a second. This gospel, th- this miracle is in all four of the gospels. John, uh, the gospel of John gives us a piece of information. You know where these five loaves and two fishes come from? John tells us. Let me flip over and read it to you real quick. Uh, John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? Okay. Back to our text here in verse 38. He saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. Right? So the disciples go to figure out, okay, how much food have we actually got here? Peter's brother, Andrew, comes back and says, there's one little boy here. He's got five loaves, two fish. But what is that amongst so many? Verse 39. And he commanded them to make all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when they had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples and set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. Listen to me. That The Bible calls him a lad. Right? We don't hardly say that anymore. He's a young feller. He's a, he's a, I think of him as a small boy, small grade school age boy. That lunch, outside of God's supernatural intervention, was only enough for one person. But when that little feller gave it to God... It was enough to feed a multitude. I love, I, 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 I mentioned about this little guy about every time I talk about this. Let me just say a few comments about this little lad tonight. First of all, he's just referred to as a lad, right? Meaning young boy. He's not named. We don't have his name, right? He's unnamed. Only Jesus knows what this boy's name is now 
Some people today want their names known. But in the big scheme of things, it's not important for people to know our name. It only counts that the Lord knows our name. That's the first thing about this little feller. The next thing about this boy was he's unselfish. This is his lunch, right? His dinner, whatever, it's all he's got to eat. And he's willing to give it up. There's no way, when he gives up his lunch, there's no way he could have known what it was that God was getting ready to do with that lunch. But he was unselfish and willing to give. That reminds me of the widow woman with the two mites. He, she, he was willing to give all that he had just as she was willing to give all that she had. And I'll guarantee you that God took those two mites and done just as much with it, just as big a thing with it. We don't know what it was. We don't know about it. But that's how he operates. That's how he works. The third thing about this little guy that I want you to know is them barley loaves. According to my study, my research anyways, they're not like loaves of bread that we go to the store and buy today. Right? He didn't show up with five loaves of Wonder Bread. I mean, can you imagine that? Could, could you imagine being pulled up there in the first grade uh, for lunch uh, and there's a little boy that opens up his, a uh, uh, little scrawny little boy opens up his lunch sack and he pulls out five loaves of Wonder Bread? <laughs> I mean, this boy's got an appetite, right? He's fixing to make sandwiches. No, it wasn't like that. They're just little round cakes. They're like flat biscuits. And it says that he's got two fishes. Them two fishes ain't like what you're thinking. They're probably closer to like sardines. Five little round cakes and two sardines for a boy like me is just a light snack. I'm just getting started, <laughs> right? It was a dinner for him, but it ain't going to feed no 5,000-plus women and children, right? 15, 20, 25,000 people. It's not going to do it. That's enough lunch for a small boy, but not 5,000 men plus women and children. But yet God used this boy in his sack lunch for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Did you notice that there was 12 loaves left over? That's more than they started with. More left than what they started with. Can, can I just say something just, just real quick before I get on with my sermon? That's exactly how it works when you do something for God. If you give what you got... Right? What you got ain't no more than that little boy's sack lunch. But when you'll put in and give what you got, God will bless and supernaturally bless it. And I'll guarantee you there'll be more left over than what they was to start with. See, when we come in for our worship, right, we've all got our own little sack lunches, right? It's just a little bit of talent. God has given us, but if we'll put in and do our part, right, instead of coming in and being the spectator and just sitting down and saying, feed me, if we'll come in and put in our lunch and God blesses it, we're, every single one of us will leave here with more than what we come in with. And he done it all. For the glory of God. So what are we to do with this? We're to go out into the highways and the hedges. 
and we're to compel them to come in so that our Father's house may be full, so that Jesus might meet their needs, right? That's something that was missing the whole thing, right? The disciples are thinking, how are we going to do it? Well, it wasn't how we're going to do it. It's let God do it, right? What, what God did was he done through them, he met those people's needs. It is the same, right? If we will go out and we will just be obedient and do what God has asked us to do and allow God to work through us, God will, right? He, he will compel them to come in so that our Father's house may be full so that Jesus might meet their needs for the glory of God. Compel them. Let me say one last thing and I'll be done. Compel means earnest, sincere persuasion. It means that when we go out and compel them to come in, we got to mean it. We got to mean it when we talk to them. We got to be sincere and we've got to be genuine. You know, people know it, right? They pick up right, on, right off the bat if you're not sincere. Right? When, when, you're, when, you're not, when you're not genuine, when you're not sincere, you ain't fooling nobody. People, re- they sense that. They realize that. They know that. They've got to feel like that you are actually, truly concerned for their soul. And, if, and, and let me just, Christian, let me be honest with you for a minute. If you're not concerned about the soul of somebody who you know is dying and going to hell, I've got to ask you what's wrong with you. Are you where you ought to be with God? Are you really who you claim to be? We ought to be broken over it. So they've got to feel like the, they've got to understand that we're really concerned. We really care, right? We're so worried about having to make the intellectual argument and convince them of the reality of God and why they ought to, you know, go to church and why they ought to get saved and all of these things instead of just letting God be God. Do you know what? When people actually think or sense or feel or realize that you actually really do deep down care that you're sincere and genuine you know they'll give you a lot of leeway they'll listen to you when otherwise they wouldn't listen to you they'll 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 check out what you're talking about when otherwise they wouldn't let otherwise they wouldn't give you the time of day when otherwise they wouldn't even listen to you You see, unless they know and realize that you really deep down truly care, you know what a lost person thinks? A lost person thinks that you're just trying to earn points with God. You're just trying to earn bonus points with God. You're trying to get in good. You're trying to impress somebody, right? It's because how they think, right? And so they think that that's what, you know, is going on, right? They, they don't understand the love of God, but they do understand a pyramid scheme, right? They do understand how if you get something out of it, if you benefit personally from it some way, then you would be willing to put yourself out there. Then you would be willing to do things like that. You know, I'll never forget. God worked on me for quite a while before I got saved. 27 years old whenever I got saved. 
But God had been dealing with me for years. He had sent people, put people on my path. There had been people that had witnessed to me. There had been times where I, you know, went to church a few times or off and on or a little bit. You know, I, I had kind of, I guess, a mixed history or whatever. I remember, and I'm not saying anything against friend days. If, if, if you've done that in a church before or whatever, um, I, I'm not saying anything bad about that. I've heard stories of it working and everything, and I'm not opposed to it or anything like that. I'm just saying in my one instance, I had a friend that had been working on me, trying to get me to come. And anyways, they were having a friend day at his church. And you know, I was to the point that if I hadn't known that, I might have went. I might have, he kind of got to the point that, you know, I kind of felt like he'd been helping me. I kind of felt like I owed him anyways. I felt a little obligated to. That was kind of adding to it. But anyways, I might have went. But, just, but he told me right up front, hey, we want you to come. It's friend day, and whichever family brings the most people, there was some recognition or reward or prize or something. I don't remember what it was, but something. And as soon as he said that, Right? I'm lost. That's how I think. I'm like, yep, I see what you're getting out of it. I understand your angle. Look, I'd like to help you out, buddy. But, no, this is what I'm thinking in my mind. I got other things I need to do. I got other more important things than to go help you win some little whatever. Actually, what I ended up doing was I ended up pawning Jennifer and the kids off on them. I did. Because I felt he'd been helping me. I felt obligated. To, and so I talked Jennifer and the kids into going, and I went on, and I was wanting to work that day, and I went on and worked. Now let me give you another story. Fast forward six, eight months, something like that. We moved here to Mountain Grove. We've gotten into our house. I don't know very many people around here. I went to work at the building supply. I had made the deal with Jennifer that I would start going to church with her, right? The only reason I made that um, deal with her was, well, two things. One, I moved her here to Mountain Grove where she didn't know nobody. And the only way I could get her to come is if I promised I'd start going to church with her. The other thing was is my kids were really small. They were maybe one and two, maybe not even quite one and two yet. No, I guess they were one and two years old. And I knew that that was a good place to raise kids, right? They would learn right from wrong, things like that. I knew that would be a good, you know, a good start for them. That would be good for them. So anyway, so we move here. And we're looking for a church, and we visit this one, and we visit that one. And it's just, you know, I like one, and she doesn't, and, or vice versa. You know, it just, we're actually about to the point where we're frustrated, and she's about to give in, and we're about to just quit, you know, even trying to find one. And there's this guy that I worked with named Brian Holy Cross. And he kept inviting me to church. But here's the thing. It wasn't even his church he was inviting me to. He was actually associate pastor at a church in Kabul, at your uncle's church. But he kept telling me, I worked with him in Mountain Grove, I lived in Mountain Grove, and he kept telling me about this church in Mountain Grove. 
And do you know, to make a long story short, many of you have heard my testimony before, but you know why I went? I couldn't figure out his angle. I could understand why he wanted me to go to his church, right? But I couldn't figure out why it was. I mean, he was, it, it got so to the point that I told Jennifer, we're either going to have to go or I'm going to have to lie to him and tell him I went. And I'm afraid to lie to him because i got to work with him and I like him. And I, I don't understand what his angle is, right? I, he might know that I'm lying to him, you know? So I'm like, we got to go. And we went, and of course it's God's hand behind all of it, right? The moment we walked in the door, bam, I mean the Holy Spirit is just right in my face. I didn't know what it was, I didn't understand, I was a lost person, right? But there was something different, right? God was putting the whole thing together. That's what it was, that was what was happening. Within a couple of weeks, right, I'm saved, answered my call to preach, and, 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 and glory to God, as they say, the rest is history, you know. But see, he was sincere. He was genuine. I'm not saying the other guy wasn't, but I'm just saying, do you, see, do you see what I'm getting at here? Do you see? We've got to go out and we've got to compel them to come in. We need to tell them the gospel. We need to share the good news with them. I mean, because if you don't go out and compel them to come in, they won't come in. Right? You realize that. You get that, right? There's so many that think that if we just sit around and wait, right, they're just going to walk in on their own. No, we're going to have to go out, and we're going to have to be evangelists. We're going to have to compel them to come in. But before that can happen, we've got to have a burden for a lost and dying world. Right? Otherwise, you won't have that compassion. You won't have that sincerity. Can I put it to you one other way as Jennifer comes for a song of invitation? If you believe the Bible, right? I mean really believe what it says. I mean you actually believe that there is a literal heaven to gain and a hell to shine. How much would you have to hate someone before you wouldn't even at the very least invite them to church one service? How much would you have to despise their soul? How little would you, it's not even how little would you have to care about them. I mean, if you really believe what the Bible says about hell, how much would you have to hate them to not even to go so far as to give them a simple, invitation would you stand to your feet I want to open the altar and I want to give you a chance to come tonight the spirit of God is dealing with you would you come tonight if you've got a need if you've got a burden would you come tonight maybe God's been dealing with you about something don't miss this opportunity maybe you're one of them I've been talking to here tonight Maybe the Spirit has been dealing with you. Maybe you realize that you're not where you ought to be with God. If you were to die tonight, you're not sure where you, where you would end, spend eternity. I'm begging you, would you come tonight? Maybe God's put somebody on your heart and you've got a burden for somebody. Somebody that's lost, would you come and pray for them? Maybe you've got a need. Maybe there's something that you're dealing with, a burden that you're carrying. Would you come tonight?
Whatever it is, don't miss this opportunity. Would you come?